Hello, welcome to this week's episode of the Empowered Artist Collective podcast. My name is Jennifer Apple, and this week I talked to Alicia Sidvega, who shares her journey as an international student coming to the U.S. from Spain to pursue theater, which ultimately led her to explore the intersection of psychology and the arts, which is what this episode is all about. We explore her current research in mental health and wellness, which focuses on building systems of care and promoting accessibility in the arts community, and we unpack the importance of collaborative approaches, how they are interested in training non-specialist providers and creating this culture of care with the goal of strengthening support systems to make mental health accessibility a priority for artists and the art community through task sharing models and developing strategies for daily life. While the topic of mental health and its accessibility can be a heavier one, Alicia does a beautiful job of making it feel accessible and providing tools and resources that all of us can really begin to think about mental health accessibility, especially for artists, in a different way. Enjoy. Alicia Sidvega, so lovely to see you. You too. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Oh, you know, just a day at a time, <laughs> foot in front of the other. Yeah. Um, for anybody who doesn't know who you are, who are you today? Yeah, so I'm Alicia, as you said. Um, I am an international student in the U.S. I am a graduate student in psychology right now at the New School for Social Research and also working at the Trauma Global Mental Health Lab. Uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about um, a lot of that we do there. But um, something more about me is I um, studied performing arts um, and international studies and public health at Sierra Lawrence. So I'm a liberal arts kid, but also a theater kid um, for a really long time. Um, So yeah, that's just a bit about uh, what's gotten me here today. And you hail from where? So I'm from Spain originally. I was born in a town outside of Madrid and then grew up also in another town outside of Madrid um, until I was like 18, which is when I first came to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And what made you decide to come here? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I... I grew up doing ballet and theater had always been part of um, what I wanted to do in the future. Um, And in particular, just thinking about musical theater that could join like Mm -hmm. the dancing that I had done, the acting and theater part, and also the music. My dad is a flamenco guitarist. So music, uh, yeah, music was just part of my existence my whole life. so musical theater was very appealing to me and something I just found really, really hard to do where I was is um, people taking my career seriously and finding programs that um, w- would not only allow me to train and develop as an artist, but also integrate that into my life in a healthy way. Um, so I really thought that a country like the U.S. where, you know, and a space like New York where like theater was like so vibrant um would allow me to find some programs um that i could develop myself as an artist more so that was really the the main goal um coming to the us to to do a theater program and actually first time i came here was to do a high school program at northwestern university over the summer um 
And then, you know, one thing led to the other. And five years later, I still am here. That was studying psychology. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, that's the, that's the thing that I want to really understand in terms of your progression, obviously, yeah. from the arts into where you are now in a more psychology-focused, but obviously mm-hmm. integrating your arts yeah. into that. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that transition, but arguably more about um, the way in which it's obviously fed this particular choice. Yeah. Yeah. No, good question. And, you know, um, when I did the program in Northwestern, I like, I just wanted to do a conservatory program for college after I graduated. Um, I just wanted to stay in the U S to be able to, you know, not have to travel for auditions, um, not have to also carry the burden of the cost of doing that because that was Mm pre-pandemic like way pre-pandemic so like no one was doing auditions online that was not an accessibility accommodation that was available not even for international students who were like across the ocean so I stayed in the U.S. for I I got a scholarship to stay for for my senior year of high school also as a way to like try to to do that audition process a bit easier um but it's still a very complicated process Mm -hmm. um one for people who are not used to the university system in the US, um, but also just, you know, again, thinking about all the cost, all the travel, or the coaching that goes into that very specific process. It's not just about singing, dancing, and acting yeah. well, it's like a very, very specific um, way of doing auditions, too. Um, that was just a crazy process for me. And it was also about having to prove myself way beyond um, the artistic. It was proving myself academically. It was proving that I had the economic resources to um, to go through that. But also, you know, once you get admission as an international student, you have to prove that you have the resources to go to yeah. school and things like that. So through that process, I, like, I'll be honest, like the first round of that, I just didn't get where I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't get to a program that was accessible for me or that, you know, just allowed me to could develop into a conservatory program to go into that um, for musical theater. Um, but I was also a bit upset and mad mm-hmm. about the system and about um, everything that, that I had to go through and that a lot of people had to go through. So I decided to go to... UCF, which is the University of Central Florida, um, and did a program in entertainment management. And really my hope was, you know, if I can learn the management side of it, which I call it the dark side, (laughs) (laughs) Um, can I also start to make a change there? And that, that started, that, that was my thought, but also my thought was, you know, Eventually, I'll transfer, you know, I'll learn when I need mm-hmm. to learn, and then I'll go into a conservatory program. So with all of that, I had, you know, an amazing support system of just people that were willing to help and things like that. So I decided to go through the audition process again okay. um, to, like, transfer into a more conservatory-oriented program and things like that. Um, and I did that whole process, and that was beginning of 2020. Okay. Like January, February, I did all the auditions, mm-hmm. and then we all know this monster came to us, um, and we were we all stopped doing what we loved doing, um, 
And through that process, you know, that second round of additions was better. I knew more about the system. I had been in the U.S. for a couple of years. I knew how to get through a lot of it. But, you know, I also faced a lot of feelings about the process. And I also faced a lot of, you know, how how do I feel about a career with, you know, this amount of hardship mm-hmm. and this all, of, all this burden that were put just both because of where I came from, but also for my accent was an issue, you know, the some aspects of my dance technique were in the way the way it was like supposed to be here. Like there was so many like steps and burdens toward um me going into a performing career that it wasn't for me it wasn't about, oh, I don't want to do this because I don't love it. Is how can I work for the experience of others to be different than the experience I have. Mm-hmm. And for future generations of artists and for young artists to be able to come into spaces around the world to be who they are, what they are coming with as their art, as their technique, and be and find an open space for that yeah. and find a welcoming space for that. So that's when I started to think about mental health. And not just mental health, but well-being. And not just critiquing the system, but how can we think about the people Mm -hmm. that navigate the system in a day-to-day? And, you know, the pandemic was crazy for everyone. Um, And I ended up going into Sarah Lawrence because it really allowed that interdisciplinary exploration to happen. Yeah. so I could do all the performing arts I wanted, you know, take a bunch of classes there. Um, and then I could explore a lot of the academic aspect of it and a lot of the public health aspect that I was becoming interested in. And a lot of also understanding the communities and the systems and the sociology of things. Um, I was really fortunate to receive a really strong economic support from that college that allowed me to go. And wow, that's a really long answer to your question. but. <laughs> Um, I guess it just, it you know, during that exploration of like the academic, the artistic, I just started bridging all those things. And I just started finding a lot of gaps that I wanted to work toward, you know, maybe not filling because I don't think it's like a one person mm-hmm. job to do that, but working toward bridging them. Yeah. And that's how I got to you know, where I'm at now, um, decided to go to grad school to really continue and to start developing knowledge, not just observing knowledge, but how can we, you know, the next step for me really felt like I want to start being a voice in the generation of knowledge around this, around thinking about mental health, thinking about well-being, thinking about how to make mental health accessible and how to make sure that more people have the opportunity to just think and reflect about their well-being, which is a privilege too. Yeah. Um, so with that, I went to the new school for my psychology degree and at the, at the trauma global mental health lab, a lot of what we do is just that, is like, how can we make systems of mental health more equitable and more accessible? Um, and of course, like one of my main focuses um, of my research of the work I want to do and that I'm doing is how can we bring all of that we're learning in context of humanitarian crisis, context in which there's really no capacity in terms of mental health specialists to other contexts in which, you know, 
all those approaches are also needed, like the arts. That's where I'm at. That's where I got to today. Yeah. Crazy thank journey. You, no, thank you for taking <laughs> us on that journey. Um, you know, yeah. I as I've continued doing this podcast and I bring on people that are not just like from my from my own inner circle of people that I know, and then, you know, I can definitely like go more specifically to things that I know about them, right? I'm bringing on people who um, I believe will help support this community. It's also helpful for me to really learn about you or as in the guest so that I can really get specific, which I didn't have prior knowledge to, right? So for me, I always love asking the journey when I don't quite know the journey because I don't want to make any assumptions. And also it it usually helps explain why I have you in here to begin with. So it's helpful for me. I I don't we're you know, I'm not pressured with time in that way. I think a journey a life journey takes time. It it took time. It took far longer than you explaining it for however many minutes. Um, so thank you. And now I have a bunch of questions. <laughs> so yeah, I guess for me, really dialing into the work that you are currently doing, um, which I then will kind of excavate a little bit further. What are you currently engaged in, in terms of your research around mental health, wellness, specifically the way in which you and your fellow researchers or whoever's on this with you are deciding to bring this into the art space? Yeah, yeah. No, great question. Um, And, you know, to your last point, it really takes a team to do any kind of work and to, um, yeah, and to just have the energy to make change. I don't think it. it's really hard if it's impossible to do it on your own, it's real. it really takes a village to, to build anything. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, definitely. And I think there's huge value in mentorship and that's something I, I really appreciate from the space I'm in, um, at the trauma global mental health lab. Um, the director, Adam Brown, who's a clinical psychologist and is this person who has all of this like international experience um, with the WHO, with international stakeholders and all of that, um, I think as grad students really um, empowers us to build our own ideas and to build from that knowledge base that the lab has from other projects and things like that for us to really, you know, think about our passions and think about how we can take all of that and expand it into the communities and the spaces that we're passionate about. Um, so with that said, um, the work at the lab is really focused um, in building systems of care um, or promoting systems of care um, to allow mental health care to be more accessible. So um, what does that even mean? Way- like what, like, let's just even go yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Good question. Um, so, you know, mental health care um, oftentimes has been, has turned into almost this aristocratic thing that happens if we think about New York and offices in the Upper East and Upper West Side. Um, you know, if we, if we think about therapy, a lot of times it's this like, we sit in like a very fancy office in a couch. Um, but the reality is that although that can be really helpful for some people and in some cases, the truth is that not everyone can access those spaces, it, both in terms of um, economic resources, um, location, time, um, stigma, 
who is delivering that care mm-hmm. um, and who is the person seeking the care and is the person delivering the care from a community and a group that will understand what the the person seeking care is going through. Will the person seeking care feel comfortable talking to that person based on what they're bringing into the space just by being who they are or being what or being trained in what they trained? Um, and sometimes the answer to that is yes. Sometimes you know people find really great care and services um, in some of of those spaces of those what I'll call just the traditional um, therapy spaces that a lot of us think as a stereotype for therapy. Um, But the truth is that a lot of communities um, and there, you know, mental health needs are just so widespread right now. Like if we just look at the numbers around the world, like there's definitely not enough specialists to cover the needs um, that are arising in very different types of communities. And that can be very obvious in certain settings, like, as I mentioned, like disaster settings, right? If we think about um, low and middle income countries, a lot of the times, just the the situation at a political level, um, if there's conflict, if there's been a climate disaster, things like that, um, it's pretty easy for a lot of us to conceptualize that there can be a lack of resources in spaces like that. And that's kind of where everything like started in terms of um, organizations like the WHO thinking about how can we build capacity? How can we make sure that more people are receiving care? And how can we make sure that that care is of quality? Because I I truly believe and I think the, the work at the lab um, is very, very rooted in this that care delivered by a non-specialist provider can be at the same or more quality for the person um, that's receiving the care than any any other type of, of care. And the truth is that it also can serve as a critical pathway for people seeking, you know, basic forms of mental health support to actually receive specialized care if needed. But it's also a way for people who, you know, will be good to go with some form of strategies of like basic forms of mental health support um, to, you know, decrease some of the of the stress of like a small behavioral health body of professionals that you know, are trying to take care of all of us in a way. So are you all focusing then on basically strengthening a, I'm going to call it like a fleet, <laughs> a fleet of, yeah, yeah. of no, like I love that. untrained from like a, I have a degree in social work, in psychology, a master's, blah, blah, blah. So basically like a UNME kind of fleet to help support the mental health needs in the interim before or during the process as somebody is trying to get access to somebody with a degree or what exactly is happening in that fleet of regular quote unquote non-trained people and how is that as a B, like a letter B secondary, how is that going to be good enough care if I don't have a degree? Yeah, no, and, and, and it's a great question. And I think um, we we call people non-specialist providers, but they receive very 
thorough training in a certain intervention. Um, so, so they are definitely trained professionals. The only difference is that they're not necessarily people who have a formal mental health background or a formal degree in, in clinical care. What that means is that the training um, we do has to be very specific, right? So a lot of the time, what that means is, for example, the WHO created um, a bunch of interventions. For anybody who doesn't know, the WHO stands for... World, World Health Organization. Organization. Right, Thank you so much. Yes. <laughs> I was like, we've been saying Great that point. a lot, and I just want to make sure that everybody knows yes, what we're talking yes, about. Yep. Absolutely. Very important. Um, so the WHO World Health Organization developed a series of interventions or programs uh, for basic forms of mental health support to decrease um, common mental health problems or to ease common mental health problems that a lot of people can experience when they face their adversity. And those can be, you know, from feel, feeling symptoms of anxiety, depression, um, even substance use, or just understanding some of the coping mechanisms that go into individuals facing adversity. We also think about communities and how, you know, not is sometimes it's not just an individual. What is the community of that person? What what are they facing, and how can we give people tools to cope with the day to day? And like um, my mentor says, Adam, in 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 one of the documentaries that we did for a project in Colombia, he talks about um, you know that a lot of the times it's very it's as important you know to solve the past trauma and things like that for individuals, but a lot of people are just thinking, how do I get through today? Literally. And I think that is what these interventions tackle. And it doesn't mean that there can't be other forms of tackling problems, but really allowing people to have strategies and facilitating those strategies to to facilitate their day to day to like, how do I make sure that I can get through the day? How can I make sure that I have the strategies to have a good night's sleep, to like cope with my finances, to cope with my mom who's yelling at me at the phone, to just, you know, cope with the day-to-day -day stressors. So that's what it gets to, these strategies and these interventions. So they're manualized interventions. They're normally very like step-by-step, -step, and that's what we train these non-specialists in. And, you know, for example, one of them is like Problem Management Plus, which is something we do a lot at the lab, and that is just a five-session intervention which goes through different, you know, strategies. And we teach the client, um, which we never call patients, people engaging in these programs, because we also want to make sure it's very different from therapy. It's very different from treatment um, in itself. Um, and to your point, it's not some people, it will be a stepping stone toward receiving specialized treatment um, from a psychologist, a social worker, a psychiatrist, but for other people, a program like this, just getting strategies to get through those day-to-day -day problems, to decrease stress, to decrease, to improve, you know, um, th that feel those feelings of hopelessness, things that, that people can experience. Sometimes just that is enough for someone to keep going and they don't need anything else. For other people, it can be a very good stepping stone into finding that specialized care through the support of what we call a helper. Um, who's delivering so the fleet? This the fleet that I was referring to the fleet would be said helpers. helpers. Okay, yes, got it. Correct. So what you're doing in this lab, or the work that you are specializing mm -hmm. in currently, is making a larger slew of helpers who are that beginning yeah. stage for 
humans, more specifically artists, mm -hmm. to come and yeah. get these tools to basically allow them to get through their day <laughs> and then yeah. in theory assist them with finding somebody who is actually trained at a formalized degree level if they need additional support. Is that, am I understanding this correctly? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the artist component is what I'm starting to introduce. And when I was referring to when I mentioned, you know, we learn a lot from humanitarian settings because a lot of these um, came from those settings. And how can we start translating those into other communities who may also benefit from um, from from an intervention like this, from a program like this, right? Um, and I think the big benefit for artists that I see um, as someone who has gone through that training process, um, you know, the truth is that most of us will most likely turn to a peer, to a friend, to someone that we trust before we ever go into trying to find a therapist, going to an emergency room, things like that. Um, and I think something really important, and I think community is a really big part of being an artist. And I think that's that's a huge asset um, in like artist communities, um, just being able to to be part of a group and to know that that community can be there for you with your castmates, with just people around you. Um, so how do we make sure that with the unique stressors too and with the unique experiences that performers face, um, that we are also ready to support each other and not just from compassion, which is fantastic, empathy, and all those things that are super important. But, you know, if I have a fellow dancer come to me feeling, you know, like they're not enough, what if I can actually provide with a tool, you know, that they can try to maybe feel a bit better when they come back at home, right? Or if I have someone who's like, experiencing a lot of stress from like having to learn all the lines for like you know having to perform and like having schoolwork and having all these things and maybe also having to take care of someone at home all these things because like artists are human too you mm -hmm. know we not only have right. the stress of like training or performing but you know also life happens so what if you know the people that we reach out to also can provide tools and what it can if they can refer to a program that is led by fellow artists that they can are actually trained in you know delivering a specific intervention that is a basic form of mental health support and that are also trained in identifying risk and identifying when things are getting bad and that they can also help you refer you know go to specialized care and how can we make sure that we have referrals for specialized care tailored for artists? Because mm -hmm. that's what I've heard to a lot. My therapist doesn't understand what I'm going through as an artist. So I think there are two big components of the work I'm doing um, in thinking about artists is how can we make that fleet of helpers um, trained to support fellow artists, mm -hmm. to support, you know, um, just, you know, people struggling with different forms of, of stress. And then how can we also strengthen the specialized care that exists in order for it to support artists? So I think that's really at the center of, of what, I, what I'm trying to do and what I'm thinking, but also 
really engaging and involving artists in that process because yeah. I mentioned I don't have all the answers and I don't think anyone yeah. does I do think it's a collaborative approach yeah. to really thinking how can we how can we strengthen uh, systems that are existing? How can we create new ones? But also, how can we start to contribute to a larger culture of care within the performing arts? Yeah. Oh, boy. There is so much here. There's so much goodness here. Okay. My, my initial feeling is like, yes, yes, yes. And in that, A, recognizing that there are structures in place that... Yeah we as a single person and even as a group are probably not going to dismantle in our lifetime, but how can we either A, use the systems for our benefit or B, shift the system so that they actually are inclusive and hold mm -hmm. um, the um, the needs of many human beings with varied yeah. needs and backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, but B, this idea of creating newness within the whole structure that exists um, so that when those structures are failing or those structures aren't working, where else can we go to? Um, which I think is this two-prong part that you're referring to. And the where can yeah. we go to when the system isn't working, I think is such an important question for mental health specifically and frankly why I have you here. Um, because, you know, I the amount of artists that I know of, and specifically, I would wager younger ones who are entering into yeah. this, who mm -hmm. are finally perhaps now on their own financially, or who are really yeah. beginning to um, cultivate a fuller life as a an individual without, you know, yeah. uh, people helping them or whatever it is, there is a level of isolation that initially comes. And there's certainly yeah. a level of adulting that comes really quickly that we're not prepared for. Um, it's no one's to blame minus the fact that, again, the system is in place and it's not helping us. Um, and yeah. so all these artists are thrown into life <laughs> without a support system. And you said, you know, yeah. it's like you can go to your community and hopefully the community is able to uplift you and support you, but we don't necessarily have the tangible tools to actually make the change. And so this idea yeah. of creating this fleet of helpers um, so that people have the tools themselves to be able to actually use to incrementally or macroly, if that's a word, <laughs> you know, get the support that they need is um, imperative. Yeah. Have you been using the same monologue for years and could use a new piece? Are you applying to BA, BFA, or MFA programs and need a monologue for that process? Are you someone who simply has no idea where to search for monologues? Well, lucky for you, I do what is called monologue sourcing, in which I find monologues specifically chosen for you. So many artists use pieces based off external labeling for types and roles rather than find pieces sharing who they really are and what speaks to them. So we'll meet virtually together. You share who you are as a human, what you love, your dislikes, your values, beliefs, family, friends, love, politics, you name it. I will help guide you through this. And then I go off on my own and find you monologues chosen just for you that fit like a glove. I've been doing monologue sourcing for years as an extension of the coaching I do with artists, and I have found pieces in this way for over hundreds of artists thus far. So if you are someone 
who wants to feel empowered about the monologues you bring into rooms and use for auditions, I would love to help you find them. And because you are a dedicated listener of the Empowered Artist Collective podcast, I want to provide you with a custom link to an exclusive rate when you check out today. Head to empoweredartistcollective.com slash podcast promo to register. That's empoweredartistcollective.com slash podcast promo right now. I cannot wait to help you find monologues you absolutely adore. My main question now then is why don't we just train people generally to help themselves? Is it because it's harder to look inward and we are better at helping others? Or is it that you believe that the structure needs to have a, I come to you for my, for support and then you hold that for me? So I, I think it could be both. I mean, um, and I also think that, I think there are a, a few layers to that, but I think one of them is, as I mentioned, um, I think it's an inherent human impulse to, to say so, um, that, that, that we seek others for support, mm-hmm. that we try to find, um, and you know, at a science level, just let's just talk science for a second. We're social beings. We, we need social support. Social support is a key part of our, of our basic triangle of, of health needs. Right. So I, I think that training others, um, is a way of also strengthening social support, which is also one of the strategies that we work on in, in some of the interventions. And then I think the other part is that training also provides strategies for oneself. Mm -hmm. So, um, there's been a body of research, a ton of it that looks at psychoeducation too, as a tool for, um, for one's well-being. So, um, a lot of times if someone can understand that they're, you know, uh, racing heartbeat, that feeling like you're sweating, that feeling shallow breath, um, things like that are common reactions to stress. That is your nervous system, which is just the system that goes off when there's, you know, danger or your body feels stress. If one can understand that those are common reactions, the first thing that it decreases is fear to have those reactions because you know your body's trying to protect you. It increases self-compassion. Mm-hmm. You, my body's not turning against me, you know. I this my my body's trying to protect me, and that already is is one stepping stone toward bringing calm again to one system. Um, so there's that aspect too, and I think. These interventions, these training, which, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned it, but this approach, we just call it task sharing because we share tasks. It's not about, you know, just reinventing the whole thing is how can we just make sure that we can share different things and that people with certain amount of training can get some maybe of the less risky tasks in terms of like just providing basic forms of mental health support and then that way specialists can really focus on people who have needs that are um that need more specialized care um so with that a lot of these interventions teach very specific strategies so something that we've found in some studies that we've done is that actually the facilitators that we train the helpers that we train also apply the strategies to their life and because these all are done through a very strong supervisory model there's always a trainer that's supervising each session that a helper provides and there's always a clinical person 
on site based on, you know, the wh whatever setting we're in that's supervising the trainer, that's supervising the helper. Um, so a lot of the times that is also a very strong growing process for the person being trained. I mean, I'm a trained helper. I've seen clients and, you know, it's, it's a huge growing process for me. It's like if I teach someone a breathing technique and it doesn't work, I also have to get creative with like, okay, how can I discover new ways of teaching a breathing technique? How can I, you know, if I'm struggle, okay, I, I struggle with like focusing and just seeing all these thoughts that come to my mind. Maybe I can do my breathing technique while walking. Maybe I can count, you know, I can give myself a count as I breathe. So I give my mind a task to do. So things like that. So I personally find that strategy-based programs and um yeah and programs that really provide tools are also really helpful for the person being trained um and i think the ultimate goal that that we think about when we deliver this intervention is how can this person become their own helper and if we with that thought you know if i'm trained as a helper how can i also become my own helper in a way and how can i get support from supervisors from other people i think it's a very nurturing circle yeah. in which we train each other and we multiply the information so more people can have the strategy so more people can know that there are ways to get through the day that can help you feel better yeah. just that even if, sometimes it's just as simple as that how can i feel better at the end of the day yeah i think so often we think of this mental health journey as like a full sum experience that it's like if mm. I don't get all of this help immediately, then all of it is a disaster. And sometimes having been there yeah. myself, it really genuinely feels that way. Um, yeah. And remembering that the little increments to get to that point of feeling better, they could be really little. <laughs> like, But that yeah. in of itself yeah. is – progress and to be in a space that you are sharing um, those feelings and um, hardships with others who are understanding that A, you're not alone and B, they are there to support that, um, I think is a really beautiful shift in the way we can think about it um, as mental yeah. health being not necessarily an isolated journey, but one that yeah, can totally. bring on other mm -hmm. people to see you. Um, yeah, you know, I think I, as you were saying, I keep oscillating in my like I'm just clocking myself where I'm like, but as my as my clinical person brain that like goes into vigilance mode, hypervigilance mode about like, okay, but how is this actually, is this causing more harm? Like, I'm just like, you know, if you have people mm. who are being helpers who are actually not trained professionals who are going in and trying to help other people, you know, with these tools and like, maybe they're actually going to be doing more harm to these people. And then I have to keep reminding myself that A, these people, these helpers are being supervised by trained professionals. B, no one is going in there expecting, or hopefully, the expectation is not I am going to fix you. I am going to yeah. solve your problems. I am a trained professional who is an expert at X, Y, and Z things that are of a much higher – like the expectation is just a different expectation of I'm going in there to find a community, to feel seen, to feel supported on a minor 
micro level to to be curious about these discoveries that can be made in the interim while I am en route towards larger healing, if that's what I need. Um, yeah. You know, so I'm just clocking myself and my own brain around it <laughs> and making sure that yeah. less, no harm is being done. Obviously, it's not foolproof, but harm is not being done if we are all going in with the expectation that this is a new model, that this is something that is changing, that is a, a shift from how we view standard mental health accessibility. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I, I think it's, it's good that you, you think that way. And I, I think it's good if people, you know, it's something new. And I, as you said, and I think it's, it's important to think about safety. And I think yeah. um, when these interventions were um, developed, I think that was at the center of it. Um, and as you said, it's, there's always a supervision part, but I mean, I've gone through the training. I can tell you it's very like thorough. It's like, you know, a lot of the times, depending on the format, it can be like a very intensive week of like several hours a day, or it can be like throughout three months in which people meet every week for three to two to three hours. And then you have homework and then you go. Actually, I want to talk about this because it's such a great training tool that we use. And it's just been like a huge bridge for me in terms of like bringing my acting into my work mm -hmm. in psychology something we do a lot is role playing. Mm -hmm. So um, both in order as an assessment tool and as a training tool. So as an assessment tool, we always, every helper that comes in goes through um, a semi-structured role play with an actor uh, that that we train. Um, and you know, that actor has certain prompts that they have to hit in terms of like, making sure that we elicit a response from the other person to assess, you know, certain things and certain competencies and ways that they respond to to what a client might say and then um after that um, a trained raider goes through through the video we videotape them and identify you know oh this was a harmful behavior we have to work on that oh this was you know a really great basic helping skill and oh that was you know excellent that was great we want to keep that up um and we they, they go through a very basic role play at the beginning then they go through the full training um and finally um they do again the role play they do that introductory role play as well as do a role play for role playing some of the sessions that um they would be doing um teaching some of the strategies and things like that and by the way this is the structure for the problem management plus program that I, I mentioned earlier, different programs may have different structures, but this is what we mostly do at the lab. So th the truth is that also throughout training, we pair helpers uh, with each other to role play the sessions to actually one person puts themselves in the role of the client and, you know, raises like questions, issues, you know, I'm going through this and that and all of that. Um, and then the helper has the opportunity to like, you know, tackle certain certain situations, like as close to real life situation as possible, but in a control environment, yeah. you know, when you can you can learn harmful, harmful behaviors, you can, you know, make a mistake in a, in a role play, and then you're not you're not hurting anyone. And then a trainer, you know, can come in and be like, hey, you see you said that it can be really hard for someone to hear that this this and that um and a really big aspect of it is also uh risk assessment um and really 
learning how to ask questions about people having thoughts of hurting themselves or, you know, um, just really assessing how someone may feel about their life um, from a risk standpoint. Um, and helpers have very thorough training on risk assessment and also on referral pathways. So there are very always very clear protocols of like when to call a supervisor, how a supervisor may come in to like offer support in an emergency when it's like imminent to call 911 and things like that. So, you know, I there has been a ton of research done that a, like an approach like task sharing builds capacity, helps more people mm-hmm. and is safe. Um, so with that, I, I do think that the mindset has to be, okay, um, you know, this has been done in like a lot in like low and middle income countries in emergency settings and disaster settings. And we're beginning to bring it to, you know, other settings like the US, like New York City, like artists, you know, and every setting is different. And a big portion of it is also adaptation. How can we make sure that this intervention is tailored for the community that's going to be, you know, receiving it and engaging with it? What if you don't mind sharing, obviously we're not going to do an extensive training here on this podcast, but is there a single tool or is there, uh, are, are you open to sharing something that even just somebody listening right now, as a trained helper yourself, you would potentially share with somebody as a tool to use if they are feeling insert X? Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll just make a nuance to the trained helper because I think the training is really ongoing and it's really like, uh, it's a learning process. And like every time I like open the manual or do anything like that, I'm learning new things. Um, and arguably every so single person I, you're encountering is also a different yeah. unique human with a different set of X, Y, and Z. Exactly. Sure. It, Absolutely. So I, I think that's really important to keep in mind also, you know, if, we're going to support someone if like we're thinking about, you know, how can we make sure that this person feels comfortable? It's like every person is completely unique and what worked for someone can like so let's not make work it about for me. Else. I'll make it about me. So we're not making this okay. general. All right. I am having a particularly anxious day, week, month, mm-hmm. year. I am feeling particularly anxious. And for whatever reason, I yeah. don't have access to more specialized care. So I haven't been in train. I haven't been mm-hmm. in therapy. Let's just, this is very much not me, but we're going to assume. Mm-hmm that this is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm on no medication scenario. for it and I really don't have much of a baseline, yeah. but I've, I really want to begin my journey to make myself feel better. And I've come to you with yeah. crazy anxiety. Um, what would you, what would you tell me potentially to try? Yeah. So, well, the first time we will talk about understanding what's making you that way, making you feel that way. Um, I think, you know, the portion of understanding adversity, understanding reactions to stress and things like that would be like uh, uh, how we would start um, talking about this because um, and validating, you know, that you're feeling that way. And I think we can do that for ourselves too. like just recognizing I'm feeling very anxious. I feel like and just going through your body a bit like I feel, you know, heartbeat or like my hands are sweating or I just feel like suddenly I'm like clenching everything in my body. So just doing a quick body scan, if that feels safe to do that um, on your own, that's great just to recognize where you're feeling the stress and where that's coming from. Um, And then one of the of the techniques that's just a very simple one, actually, that 
you know, a lot of people report being really helpful. It's a very simple breathing technique. So um, we would sit, you know, find a comfortable seat. And as I mentioned, you know, um, it can also be adapted to like, oh, can we do it walking? Can we do it laying it laying down? So it's a bit easier to let the air in. So you can find the position or the or the space that you feel most comfortable in. Also, the right temperature. I'm a big temperature person. I think, you know, that not being too cold, not being not feeling too hot. I, I think that's really important. Feel like your body temperature is is nice and, and and how you want it to be um and then you can just start closing your eyes and thinking a bit about where you're feeling your breath and a lot of times if we're feeling stress it may be really up here um so just noticing that and being compassionate with ourselves that that's where we are at today and in that moment and from there, we would, you know, just like start thinking about how we can deepen that breath and slowing it down. We, we in Problem Management Plus, we think about a balloon in our stomach um, that that expands as we breathe in and collapses as we breathe out. So that imagery tends to be really helpful. So it's just not about our body. It's this like thing that we think about. And I think something really important to calming stress is giving our mind a task. Our mind is like, the wanderer mm -hmm. you know like yeah. that's just a job so if we think if you if we give it a very clear image a very clear task that will help us bring it to, to the present moment so thinking about that balloon that expands and collapses um and just not giving it too much thought in terms of how fast how much it inflates just knowing that that's happening naturally um and then slowly we would try to like make sure that 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 balloon we can start slowing it down as much as possible and then we would introduce the counting so we would count to three in the inhale and to three in the exhale we would try every round to make it a bit slower just again to make sure that we're regulating the nervous system and that we're bringing down the stress for a bit so that's just something that we can do anywhere mm -hmm. that we're at it can be at home it can be you know in the subway um it can be anywhere that we feel safe to do so and that we can take a second to just, you know, notice that our body is breathing by itself and then give it a bit of a tool to just feel, you know, that it can slow down, that it can allow, that that we can help our body feel a bit more relaxed and find that sense of ease. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that helps a lot with, with feeling some anxiety and stress. Yeah. Thank you for walking us through that. I know for myself when I hear, you know, a version of what you're talking about. It's like, oh yeah, I do this with my clients in terms of a body scan or, you know, when I was in grad school, yeah. the amount of breath work that we did was exhausting. And often, you know, I could take it for granted that I I know this and forget that so many people don't and or some people do yeah. and just need the reminder. And I think it's helpful to be reminded of these basic tools and just kind of come down to the foundation, especially when things are really overwhelming and it's kind of hard to see through all of it and, and know that we inherently have these tools at our disposal yeah. within our own bodies. Um, thank you for walking us through that. I'm curious how, if somebody were interested in this model um, and that they were interested in joining this gorgeous fleet of helpers and they A, live in New York and then B, if they don't. Um, how that um, all works if I wanted to be a part of it and if I wanted to be a part of it as a client on both sides. Yeah, I mentioned a lot about Problem Management Plus and all these strategies and like this 
larger um, manualized interventions that we have. It's something that we do a lot in the lab and that I'm actually going to start running a small study um, is a training in psychological first aid. So that is a bit different from mental health first aid, um, but psychological first aid, it's really about how to like contain a situation or someone who is in distress. Um, and those three principles are look, listen, and link, uh, which is just a very simple way of understanding what, you know, distress may look like in someone in ourselves. Cause something I really love about psychological first aid is that everything we learn for someone else, we think about it for ourselves too. And then listening, how can we listen to our body? How can we listen to someone else uh, who's going through a stressful situation? And then the linking part, which is like, how can we link this person to resources? So I think someone interested in this model, it, it would be great for them to get trained in, in something like psychological first aid is like just a start on like, you know, basic forms of mental health support and how do I feel and being trained at that. Um, so specifically for artists, unfortunately, there isn't a lot. So that's what I'm trying to do, yeah. like sort of like expand this 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 space and make it accessible and tailored for artists. Um, so they can definitely, um, as I progress with that study, they can, if, if they want like a more specific artist oriented training, um, we can definitely, um, they, they can definitely join for that one. Um, and, you know, I, my hope is that as we expand that and as we collect more data and evidence that this works and how to make it better every time and how to make it more tailored and safer and all of that, I'm hoping to expand those opportunities. But overall, there are a ton of psychological first aid trainings, the National Childhood Traumatic Stress Network offers a synchronous one so you can watch different videos. You'll go through different like quizzes and, and things is, and things like that. You can, there's, I think like, um, sort of like a forum to like ask questions so you can get trained, you know, even if you don't have a lot of time and like small increments, things like that. And then there are other, um, institutions that also offer training in psychological first aid. So I think that could be a really great way to start. Um, and then from there, um, you know, a lot of these task sharing models are very new. So a lot of it is research um, and a lot of it is like research studies that you can participate as a participant helper, you know, in which you may be trained. And we would also collect data from like, you know, how are you learning? Are you liking it? Are you not? What is what are you struggling with? Things like that. Um, so finding those studies that that I hope they expand and we have more of them. Um, right now, we're just doing one with community-based organizations in New York City um, called Recoup New York. So, you know, if um, someone listening to this podcast is like a someone in a community-based organization and they would like to bring these trainings into community-based organizations, they can reach out for that. But, you know, beyond that, I think it's a really new model that hopefully will expand more and um, it will be more accessible for people to be trained in this. Um, but for sure, I would start with something like psychological first aid in terms of the training aspect, in terms of seeking help. Um, of course, I'll preface this by, you know, if someone is experiencing, you know, really serious thoughts of hurting themselves or just feeling that they can't cope with what they're going through in the moment, there's always crisis lines that 
Um, you should reach out to like 998 is a great one. The LifeNet line is another great one. And um, Jennifer, I'm sure we can put some of those in the, show in, in the description yeah. of this. Yeah, so people have access to those. And of course, you know, emergency 911. Uh, but beyond that, um, there, there are different centers um, in New York um, that offer low cost therapy or free therapy. At the new school, actually, there's the Saffron Center who that offers um, locus therapy for for people in New York. So that could be an option, just reaching out to the Saffron Center, seeing, you know, um, if they have availability. And there are other centers. You can, um, in New York City, um, they have really good community-based resources. So you can always call New York City well, and they would refer you to, like, either free therapy or locus therapy um, or just support groups or other forms of support, which, you know, we're not the first ones thinking about. Mm. Um different forms of support. So there are other ways too that people think about that, like through support groups, through community initiatives, things like that, that exist. And I think um, a resource like New York City Well may connect you with what, you know, with what may work for you based on like what you're going through in that moment. Um, and yeah, and honestly, I know it can be really daunting to just go through the internet when you're struggling with something. But the something I've learned from my engineering sister and partner, because they are like the software nerds, is that if you just, with a lot of love, but that's the truth, yeah. if they just go, you know, sometimes if you just put online exactly what you're looking for, a lot of the times you may get really quickly resources. So the internet a dark side but it also is really helpful for finding resources really quickly so sometimes if you just type you know free resources for therapy in x area a very quick list will come up or at least a number or um or a website that you can go to in order to get more specific sure. resources um so i i know again that's sometimes it can be like that's so silly but Sometimes those very silly things, those very small things, we just need to be reminded of that are available to us, that we already have the tools, that no one needs to come to teach them to us. Sometimes it's just about reminding that we know that we can do this, that we know that we have those tools and that they exist and that we have, we can feel better through them. Yeah. First of all, thank you for all of those resources. We will put them in the show notes so that people have access to them. Um, yeah. More specifically, if people want to work with you in the research that you are doing and the particular helping that you are facilitating and the clients that you are needing to do these uh, research groups and or if people want to reach out further in terms of working with you or understanding more yeah. of the work that you do, what are the best ways that people can reach out, find you, work with you, and also work with these programs? Yeah, absolutely. So email, I'm always on my email. Um, so you can definitely, we can put it also in the show notes uh, for people to reach out to. And, you know, um, if people are interested in mental health and artists, I would definitely encourage you to like reach out to me because I'm in also early stages of developing this idea of thinking about how can we bring systems of care to be more accessible in terms of mental health, how can we build that culture from the inside? And I completely believe in participatory research and participatory design, which just means anyone who's interested, please reach out to me. Let's talk. Let's think about it together. 
Um, so email is a great way. Uh, we can also plug in the website for the lab if you're just interested in um, the global mental health field as a whole or just thinking, talking more about task sharing and being connected to different trainings and resources or even, you know, collaborating with the lab if you're like really interested in, in getting to know more of this work. So I think those would be the best ways. Beautiful. Um, thank you for walking us through this. Um, you know, I think so often we want results and we want finite and finalized, like concrete things to point to. And I think it's a really helpful reminder that so much of what we do is in process. And in order to make change, being curious about the process and being curious about um, the steps to get to quote unquote, the end. And that's where all the beauty yeah. and growth happens. So I'm super grateful to you for being so invested in this work and in hopefully yeah. changing the way in which I'll focus specifically on artists are able to, you know, yeah. get care and have access to resources and um, do so in a way that feels supported and also collaborative. Um, you know, yeah. it is a collaborative form what we do. And so yeah. why that doesn't extend to other things outside of just the performing or just the doing of the craft is beyond me. So this is a wonderful uh, reminder that there are other ways and yeah. that, um, you know, mental health and wellness is something that uh, we are all going to navigate at some point, um, the ups and downs in all of our lives, and to be reminded that there are people out there who are really trying to make it easier for all of us to feel supported is just a wonderful gift. So thank you for all that you are doing on behalf of the artist community. <laughs> thank you for- um, Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. And thank you for sharing um, all of these ways that um, we can begin to think about it differently so that we can hopefully start to change the narrative and the, the accessibility yeah. to um, getting the care and support that so many of us really desperately need. So really appreciating all of you and all the work that you're doing. And I'm excited to like check in in like a couple of years, <laughs> like obviously like yeah. in a year, but like in a couple of years to be like, oh, started here and now look what's built. Um, Cause that's how everything starts. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And yeah, hopefully I think that's a really big point. How can we change the narrative and how like can we put health and wellness at the center of the artist's experience and really make sure that people who want to be artists and who are artists um, are also able to do so in a thriving and sustainable way. So I think that's at the center of my mindset, my work, and hopefully it can definitely be at the center of the whole performing arts culture um, as a whole yeah. very soon. Yeah. Thank you. Alicia has shared a ton of links and resources with us that we have put in our show notes if you wanted to check any of that out. And if you were hoping to be a participant in the research that she was discussing, you can reach out to her in the email linked below as well. If you liked this episode, please like, rate, follow, and most importantly, review us. This allows us to continue reaching other artists' ears who want to be engaged in these kinds of conversations. If you did not like this episode, just let it all slide. If you are not yet doing so, please follow us on Instagram at Empowered Artist Collective, on TikTok at Empower Artist Collective, more on our website at EmpoweredArtistCollective.com. 
If you are wanting to be kept more in the loop with our email list, we have that in the show notes. And if you are seeking some cute little merchandise, we also have that there too. As always, I am so endlessly grateful that you keep on coming back and we will be back again next week. Until then. 